Good morning. We're going to start back on the PowerPoint from a few weeks ago and because we didn't finish it, and then we'll go to another one if we need to because I've got another one ready for the next section. So we're in the book of Acts. So let me launch the PowerPoint, and I'll read the section and flip down to the slide that we were on. Acts 3, 19 through 26. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, quote, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Let me stop right there. This was from... Deuteronomy 18, we went over this in early December, the last time I taught Sunday school. And God from heaven identified Jesus as that prophet. And it's saying right here that if we won't listen to Jesus, we're going to be destroyed. So that makes it serious, doesn't it? Verse 24, and likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors Onward, also announced these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your father, saying to Abraham, in your seed all the families of the earth will be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. So let's go to the verse we were on. Yeah, I hadn't fully explained this passage. While we're on this slide, if you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn to 2 Samuel 7 and verse 12. The single sheet is the note page for what we've got left. Okay, page two, single sheet. We'll get to the other one if I finish these last three or four slides here. We were on this last time. Could you say the verse again in Samuel? 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 17, and then again verse 19. 2 Samuel 7, 12. And the reason I'm going to this is because here Samuel is called a prophet. The Jews consider him the first prophet after Moses. Okay. So I want to quote from Samuel Messianic prophecy that would be fulfilled in the person of Christ and would be exactly what Peter was referencing here. So if you've turned to that, you can follow along. I'll read it. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, this is prophecy to David, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. 
He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. 2 Samuel seven sixteen, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever, and your throne shall be established forever. Verse 17, In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Now, well, let's deal with that, and then I want to read verse 19. This is a very important messianic prophecy. Nathan prophesying to David found in Samuel the prophet. Okay? Now, don't be confused here. It would be easy to be. The question here is whether the prophecy is about Solomon or is it about Messiah? I might call on Eric. I don't know if he has any special insights. You don't? I bet you do. No more than you, Bob. All right. So the answer to that is both. You have in Old Testament prophecy the idea of the one and the many and the near and the far. So the near-term fulfillment of some of this prophecy is found in Solomon. Certainly Solomon built the house for his name, the temple. Okay, we're in actually, for those of you who just got here, 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 17. Okay, so his seed was Solomon in the building of the house. And look at verse 14. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. Now this is quoted, I believe, in the New Testament as Messianic. But then, when it says, when he commits iniquity, I will correct him, that becomes confusing because if the prophecy is about Christ, he will be a son to me, and it is about Christ. Then how was it that about the prophecy about iniquity, Christ never committed iniquity? Well... In the verses you read, it it says, for example, in 13, he should build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of the kingdom forever. Yeah. Okay, so that would separate that. Wait, you're pointing the mic the wrong way. I'm sorry. So that would... (laughs) That didn't work that way. (laughs) Okay. There you go. Hey. (laughs) Oh, first time. Yeah, right. Okay. Uh, So that would... That verse right there, you're, you're only talking about Messiah. You're, you're, you're not uh, uh, talking about Samuel. So are you saying that within the verses you just read, some of the verses are referring to Samuel and some of the verses? I would re- say it, it's all referring to both Samuel, I mean to uh, Solomon and Christ, with the Christ being the greater one. But bring the mic over here to Eric. I know he's itching to talk about this. No, I want to hear from you. Were you aware we talked about Yeah. <laughs> he knows which end of the yeah, mic to use. I better know that by now, yeah. 
Um, if everyone turns their attention further down in Second Samuel seven nineteen, mm-hmm. um, Bob is probably going to go here. Uh, he goes on to say, and yet this is David's response to the great promise that God had given him. He says, and yet this was a small thing in your eyes, the great promise that he'd given him. He says, you have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. Exactly. And so this is looking for the future. And so that's proof really exegetically that this wasn't merely fulfilled, as Bob is saying, in Solomon's day. It's looking forward to the coming of Christ. And then he says something very interesting. He says, and this is instruction for mankind. Yes. Oh, Yahweh God. There's a translation issue with this, but I like the Holman Christian Standard. What do you have, the ESV? I have the ESV, and yeah, it's Torah. That's what it is. Yeah, it, this is Torah for mankind. Yeah. So if we want to hear what God says. Yep. Torah, we need to listen to the Messianic prophecies. Amen. That's, That's absolutely right. what Peter was preaching to the Jewish leadership. If you don't listen to Messiah, God will require it of you. You can say Torah, 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 but we won't listen to Christ. You'll be destroyed because this is Torah for mankind. Very, very good. Yeah, I was going to go there, by the way. But see, it's the near and the far, the one and the many, and the seed promise. And so... David understood on the scene of history that God was speaking both of near term because he says you have spoken also of thy servant's house for a great while. So the near and the far. And so it referred to Solomon and to Christ. Now I've heard a couple different things about this uh, cracking him at the rod of men. Some have well, certainly would apply to Solomon. He committed plenty of iniquity. But Jesus was sinless, but he bore our iniquity, even though sinless, and was smitten by the rods of men. And I've heard people talk about that too here. So this is a fabulous prophecy. My dear brothers and sisters, if you study, which I know you do, the more you understand about the Bible the harder it is to have unbelief. Okay, how could you not get excited about this? And do you think some clever bunch of people over a thousand years, more than a thousand years, sort of just dream this up? A serial novel that sort of started way back when and people had to, they would, they would never get it right. This is the product of the Holy Spirit. And so I have another passage so we saw 2 Samuel 7:19 proving that it also is a distant fulfillment but Hebrews 1:5 Hebrews 1:5 feel free to make comments or, or to ask questions i decided to try something i'll read the scriptures rather than passing the mic around for scriptures to be read but i want you to feel free to comment or question or how whatever you want to do okay i think that'll be faster because i have them in my notes here and i can just read them hebrews 1 5 for to which of the angels did he ever say you are my son today i have begotten you isn't that psalm 2 2 am i correct eric psalm 2 2 and then he says and again I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. There's your Second Samuel 7 reference. 
So the New Testament says this is messianic. Hallelujah. Do you believe the Bible? Amen? I do. I'm excited. I'm more excited about it now than I've ever been. Somebody asked if it gets easier or harder as I get older to preach. I said it gets easier because I know more Bible than I did 30 years ago. (laughs) And thankfully, I can still remember it. Let's go to verse 25, Acts 3.25. (laughs) I don't know how long that's going to last, so let's just keep going here. Keep putting it out there while it's still up here. I told somebody the other night, we were at at a birthday party, and I said, if I ever get to the point where it's obvious I don't know what I'm talking about, but I think I do, Put me on the end of a dock, hand me a fishing rod, stay here. (laughs) We'll find somebody else to preach. Acts 3.25. It is you. Now, if you look at this in the Greek, this chapter 3, the Peter's sermon, the word you, I have, I start to blow there with that word. It's throughout. Peter is addressing the Jewish leadership, and he says, you, 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 and he's indicting them and showing them how great their guilt is. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Peter preaches pointedly and personally. Now the reference would be to two passages in Genesis. Genesis 12, 3. I will bless those who bless you, said to Abraham, and who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Peter's preaching from Genesis 12, 3. But this is reiterated in Genesis 22, uh, which is a key place where Isaac was taken up to be sacrificed. And God revealed himself to Abraham as God who will provide. God will provide. Genesis 22 and verse 18. In your seed, in your seed... All the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So God is blessing people from every tribe and nation through the seed of Abraham. Mike, the mic to Mike. I don't want to get too far afield here, but the promise, uh, the seed promise uh, in Genesis 12, 3 I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. How does that apply to us today? I mean, that, we hear a lot of people that will say, you know, depending upon what our governing authorities do, you know, we get affected by that directly. Okay, I think you got a good point. Some people will say that means we have to support any policy that, contemporary Israel makes as a nation if we want to be blessed. Right. 
Well, I think we would learn a lot just by looking at Peter's application of this. How did he apply it? Who is it, according to Peter and the preachers of the New Testament, that's blessed? Who would that be? People who believe in Messiah. Right. Who is it that's cursed? People who don't believe. People who reject Messiah. Now, I'm a strong supporter politically of Israel, but right now Israel's still under the curse because they're not believing in Messiah. Because these were Jewish leaders Peter was preaching to, and he was warning them about the curse, and they weren't blessed just because they were Jewish leaders, because they'd rejected Messiah. So the seed is the messianic seed promise, and it's reiterated in Genesis 22:18. So you would say it applies more individually and not... It applies to whoever would believe in Messiah. It's individual. It applies individually, but it's not individualistic. I know we get a lot of criticism from emergent for being individualistic. It would apply corporately to whoever you might be preaching to, because if you look at the whole context of Peter's message here, He was saying that salvation and restoration would come to Israel eventually if they repented and turned. That was a corporate idea. God still has promises for corporate Israel. Don't get me wrong. And there will be a corporate salvation at the end of Daniel's 70th week. But right here and right now, it starts with the person hearing the gospel. I was on doing radio broadcasts with Andy Olson this week, and we're looking at uh, condemnation and salvation. Uh, I was looking at the Lamb's Book of Life, and it says there, and here's where we can rebuke the emergence to say, well, individual salvation is nothing more than a consumer product to be sold to people in order to take their money. That's what Paget and McLaren and these guys say. Well, if you read in Revelation, it's talking about who is it that's thrown in a lake of fire? Who is it? Whoever's name was not found in the Lamb's book of life. A name is something that is attached to a person. (laughs) So don't be intimidated by the postmoderns and the emergents who say, well, you can't have anything that applies to an individual. And they rebuked Martin Luther. McLaren said, well, when Luther said on the gospel, here I stand, McLaren says that's the first statement of modernism, and they hate modernism. You can't have I believing the gospel and standing and being saved and having my name in the book of life. They reject all of that. But they reject the Bible. But it doesn't exclude... Corporate responsibility, yes. Um, you know, your, your question, Mike, was a, it's a big boogaboo with um, Jan Markell's ministry because she obviously promotes oftentimes if an American president has any, any law or, or they do anything that ends up, any policy at all that ends up hampering Israel, then they try to find a tornado or a, some sort of you know, huge thing that happened to America. Well, if you want to see where the judgment actually occurs corporately, turn your Bibles to Joel chapter 3. Because like Bob was saying, is it ends up happening at the end of the 
the 70th week. Um, in Joel chapter 3, in verse 3, well, just start in verse 2. The Lord says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Mm-hmm. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations. So that happens at the Battle of Armageddon. And so this, in other words, any given tornado that you see, we don't know why it comes. Um, we can just be content to say we don't know in God's providence. He sends it. And the reason I say that is you'll see men who are very wicked to Israel and they prosper. And you'll see men uh, who are very kind to Israel and they die in early age. You know, um, look at the Remember, some years ago. We had tremendous tornadoes that wiped out. It, it wasn't the liberal left that they wiped out or the. It, was, it went through Oklahoma where people go to exactly, church. Exactly. It went through the Bible Belt, you know. <laughs> yeah. And so we, we really have to be careful. We don't know oftentimes why these natural disasters happen. What we can be content with in saying is what Bob just said. When the 70th week of Daniel comes, God will rectify these things. And, and it, yeah, yeah, in the meantime, the gospel goes to the Jew first and also the Amen. Gentile. Yep. And any person who believes will be saved. Okay? So that's the preaching that you see. Now, Acts confirms this because there are passages that talk about the restoration of Israel that they asked about in Acts 1. And there are many applications directly to persons. Let me give you an example, and I want to look at how the apostles preached like Christ. Now, if you want to turn to Acts 7.51. See, this is how I just keep 10 slides. I make you turn to other passages and... Keep the slide count down. This is the sermon of Stephen. Say, Luke Acts is full of reviews and previews, so I'm going to teach it like that, reviews and previews. Because it might be a while before we get to Acts 7. Acts 7.51. Stephen, very much like Peter. You, men who are stiff-necked, And uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Now, let me stop right there. Notice the play on the idea of sons of and fathers. See, they would, in their mind, associate with the good guys. Okay, we're the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We love Samuel and Isaiah and Jeremiah. These are our guys. Because they're, in their internal mechanisms of thinking, identifying with the good guy. Right? Jesus, and after him, the preachers and acts, turned that around and said, well, you've got this all confused. You're the sons of the evil people in the Old Testament. What? Yes. You're the ones who uh, threw Jeremiah down into a cistern to die. That's who you are. I'm elaborating a little bit. But see, if you read through the persecutors, they didn't associate in their mind with them. They just thought, we're the good guys. Stephen, well, he ended up being stoned for this, said, you're resisting the spirit, and your fathers persecuted the prophets. That's what you're doing. They killed those, verse 52, who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, 
whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels, yet did not keep it. Now his audience were people scrupulous about keeping the law, as Paul had been, and he was in the audience. How does Stephen say to them, you do not keep it? Let me answer my own question. By rejecting Messiah and refusing to listen to him, they've disobeyed the most important part of the law from Deuteronomy 18, which he mentioned earlier. Or I mean, which Peter mentioned, and now we have Stephen. If you don't listen to Messiah, you are rebelling against the law, even if you scrupulously keep every point that you can. Do you see that? (laughs) If you won't come to Messiah, you're a lawbreaker. I don't care what you do. Now, let's go back and see how Jesus preached. This is amazing, really, if you want to think about it. That's in Matthew 23, 29 through 32. If you want to turn to that. Matthew 23, 29 through 32. And you see how Jesus preaches in a way that later Stephen would echo. Again, playing off of this idea of fathers of, sons of, who's the son of whom. Son of doesn't just mean physically descended from, it also means characterized by. And so if you're going to do the deeds of Abraham and be a son of Abraham, you need to have faith like Abraham had. That's the claim that Paul made in Galatians. Now, let me read this to you. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, Jesus said, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Verse 31. So you testify against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. So here you have this measure of guilt that's being filled up. The idea is found in Romans, too, about this storehouse of wrath that's being filled up until it spills over and ushers into Daniel's 70th week. Do you see that? So now when you're reading in the New Testament and there's an interchange between the preachers and the Jewish audience, sons of who's my father, always think about this other application of it. Spiritually, they're not sons of the righteous prophets. They're sons of the ones who killed the prophets because Jesus is the greatest prophet and they're going to kill him. That's what Peter's preaching. If they were real sons of the prophets, they would have believed in Messiah. Wow. Last verse? No, I got two more verses or two more slides anyhow. For Acts 3.26, God raised up his servant and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. Now we see this more specifically explained. 
though it was preached earlier, the turning. Turning is a synonym for repentance. The way one receives the blessing of Abraham is by repenting and believing the gospel. So after indicting his Jewish audience, he's saying to them, God wants to bless you. There's always this hope for the healing and blessing. And the way he's going to bless you is by turning you from your evil ways. Now the question is, are they going to admit they have evil ways or proceed in their self-righteousness? And that's really what happens to us as we hear the gospel. Are we going to admit that we're wicked sinners or are we going to embrace our own guilt and failure and repent and believe the gospel? Wow. First, I have that highlighted in red. Because the gospel goes first to the Jews, as I say in my slide, doesn't mean it goes only. And you'll see the, this in Acts 1.8. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. She'll be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. So it starts out right there on the day of Pentecost and gradually goes out. The Samaritans, God-fearing Gentiles, the Athenians, ultimately to Rome. Now, there's no indication in ancient literature that Rome was considered the remotest part of the earth. So we can take this as a prophecy that the gospel will continue to spread even after the end of Acts all around the entire world. Because Acts ends in Rome. Acts 1.8, I mentioned Romans 1.16 well, let me read verses 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Do you, I hope you know that God always intended and said that he intended to bring salvation to Gentiles through the Jewish Messiah. There are people who deny that and suggest that the church is simply an afterthought. God tried to bring the gospel to the Jews. They rejected it, so then now we got some other program going on. You know, really bad dispensational teaching is harmful because it drives people to amillennialism, and it ought not to. If we had good teaching to start with, we wouldn't have that problem. And there's no reason why those of us who believe that God's ultimately going to save Israel don't also believe that God always did intend to save Gentiles. These are not logically contradictory or mutually exclusive. Turn with me. To Isaiah 49 and verse 6. And you can let me know after class whether you like my new way of doing this. I just, I'll tell you why I'm doing this. I think it's more beneficial to know that everybody opened their Bible and looked at it. 
if I have someone reading somewhere, everybody else will wait to hear that, which is okay. But I can read it. I want everybody to look at it in their Bible because it'll have another impact on you. Look at this. Wow, this I wrote a I wrote a paper about this when I was in seminary to submit to a liberal professor proving and he liked it actually. It was about the gospel in the Old Testament. Isaiah forty nine six. He says it is too small a thing that you should be my servant, now this is Messiah, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Isaiah 49, 6. Now look at that and then think Acts 1, 8. You shall be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. Jesus in Acts 1, 8 is reiterating what was said in Isaiah 49, 6. The Great Commission is in Isaiah. I just got an email yesterday from some Les Feldig follower who wants to deny that there's any Great Commission that we need to listen to. Uh, Hey, I wrote my article. I can't debate. You can't get anywhere with these people. God's going to have to open their mind. They deny it's even binding. We can ignore the Great Commission. A lot of imaginative thinking, I guess. But look at Isaiah 49, 6 in your Bibles. Who could deny that the plan of salvation wasn't already there in the Old Testament? Hallelujah. Yes, I'll bring the mic to... Oh, you got it. Okay, go ahead, Brian. Before, when God started uh, the Jewish, uh, the Hebrews with Abraham, wasn't it always God's intention, even before this, to always bring those other people to him? You see that in Genesis 12, 3? Yes, you get it. Good, Good point. It was funny. The girls and I were watching this movie called Woman of the Bible. And um, this woman gets on there, this commentarist, and she goes, the greatest gift that we ever have is free will. And, uh, and, then, and then in the next scene. Really? Yep. And then in the next scene, you have the spies from Israel going into the, uh, was it Jericho? And uh, that the prostitute hit him and everything like that. And um, the spies, the Jewish spy says, we are God's chosen and it was just kind of funny how it, they just yeah. totally nixed everything the lady just said. Uh, you know, whoever the greatest gift is free will, that would be like saying damnation is a gift. Somebody should read Luther, The Bondage of the Will, and see. If God didn't do a sovereign work of grace and save us, we'd free will our way right into hell. Andy and I were talking about that on the radio when we did that broadcast. Well, the greatest gift is messianic salvation by grace through faith. The solas. So Jesus is the servant of Yahweh, mentioned in Isaiah, who God raised up first for Israel, which is what here it says, first to you. And also to the Gentiles. I'm going to quote 
David Peterson, whose pillar commentary on Acts is one of the good ones I have. Okay. And he says this, in the present context, God, or the Lord Jesus as his servant, is the implied subject of the verbal expression turning from, uh, and then he quotes the Greek, this highlights the Lord's role in making repentance possible. Uh Uh-huh. The Lord's role, says Peterson, in making repentance possible. Quoting him some more, repentance or turning to God is a human action which theologically discerned is also a divine action in individuals and societies, which would bring in Israel at the end of the 70th week. It's a blessing, excuse me, he says it's a blessing of the new covenant for the Jews first, but also for the Gentiles. At this point in the narrative, Peter clearly anticipates that the messianic salvation will somehow be extended to the nations. In Acts 10 through 11, he is faced with more precise questions. How might Gentiles actually receive the gospel from believing Jews and be united with them in the community of the Messiah, unquote? We'll get to Acts 10. Should the Lord tarry, as they used to say? We'll get to Acts 10. Peter had to be convinced. He's preaching it in a way, but he doesn't get it until he sees the vision of the unclean animals coming down in the sheet. Remember that? And he's brought to the household of Cornelius. And he actually sees God save Gentiles. Wow. One more slide. Oh, yeah, we're doing reviews and previews. See that? That's how you understand Luke Acts. Reviews and previews. So we see... Peter preaching about the need for turning to God and repentance. Well, we go all the way back to Luke 3, 8, and we see John the Baptist preaching the same thing. Therefore, says John the Baptist, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. I wonder if there isn't a lesser to greater thing going on here. I'm just wondering, think about this. If God can raise up children for Abraham from stones, he can certainly do it from Gentiles. Luke one sixteen. prophecy about John the Baptist he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord, their God. John the Baptist preached repentance. Jesus preached repentance. It says in Luke 5 that Jesus came not for the righteous, but to bring sinners to repentance. Peter preached repentance, Acts 2.38. Stephen preached repentance. Paul preached repentance. Isn't that amazing? Some people don't realize actually how many times because they're looking in their concordance for the word repent or repentance. Turning 
is a synonym, both in English and in Greek. Repent and turn, sometimes you find it in one sentence. Let me read Acts twenty six sixteen through 28, and then we'll go to our next PowerPoint. This was Paul recounting Jesus' call when Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus. Acts twenty six sixteen. If you want to turn to it, I'll wait a little bit. Acts twenty six sixteen through through eighteen. This is one you're going to want to know about. Oh, hold on. Does the um, the phrase there bear fruits in keeping with repentance simply mean repent, or yeah. is there well, more see, in the fruit? Case, in this case, they were running out to be baptized by John the Baptist, but they were doing it because they wanted to get, stay. Just follow the crowd. Okay. Hey, the crowd's doing this. It's the thing to do. And so we're just going to go along with it. But John the Baptist discerned that they were a brood of vipers that didn't really repent. So to bear fruit means to have real repentance, not just going along with the crowd. Does that make sense? Good question, Christy. All right, has everybody found Acts 26, 16? All right, here we go. This is Paul telling a, telling a, a Roman authority what Jesus had told him. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. Look at verse 18. To open their eyes so that they may turn, there's that synonym for repentance, from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. There's a lot of theology in verse 18, isn't there? Look at that. That when we come to Christ, we're, we're stepping out of the darkness and into the light. We were under darkness. We were under the domain of darkness. The prince of darkness ruled over our hearts and minds. Oh, yes. No use making it sound better than it was. It was bad. I know it was for me. I used to curse Christ. Brian, bring the mic over to Brian, or do you have it? Yeah, tell a story about how you were fighting Christians next to your house. The, I, I, had a, I had a home uh, right next to a uh, Christian congregation right after I got out of the military, and I was a real heathen. But I would always argue with the pastor over issues of uh, parking. He would tow cars away of people that I had there and so on and so forth. Anyhow, after, uh, after years of this, going to battle with this guy, I would run up his steps into his church, into his office, and you could just read this guy's mind. He's like, oh, no, here comes that crazy man again. And uh, 
Anyway, when I was when I uh, got saved, he was the first person that I told that I was saved, and I came running up into his the church this time, and he's like cowering back in his chair. And then I told him that, and, and, and he had said that his congregation had been praying for me for years. So there you go. You know, when the darkness leaves and the light comes, everything's different. Isn't that an amazing story of God's grace? So we turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God. We re- what do we receive? Forgiveness of sins. We can't forget that. This, unlike what the emergents say, this is not some consumer product. One of the things Luther was absolutely adamant about, that forgiveness of sins was a gift from God. It couldn't be peddled by the sale of indulgences. The Paul over here. That was that was really what started the, the Reformation was the sale of indulgences and Luther being outraged. He, you know, because he had his own torment of soul and he, he knew he couldn't buy his way out of it. Yes. Yes, about a repenting and turning. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Yeah, about repenting and turning. Is it something, one, you do, two, God allows you to do, or, or finally God does, you say, I'm, I'm, you win, I'm sick of doing this thing, therefore I turn. <laughs> yeah, I believe that repentance is a good question, by the way. I believe, and I'm agreeing with Luther in his book, The Bondage of the Will, this is God's grace that anybody would repent. But we do actually repent. But we only do so because of a prior work of grace in our heart. And now we're looking at timelines. We might put up, a, you know, this happens, then this happens, then this happens. People try to do that with Acts. They try to find timelines. And it never really fits. As uh, John MacArthur rightly said in his book, The Gospel According to the Apostles, we break out this ordo salutis, which means order of salvation, so we can study it. But in reality, it happens instantaneously. Okay? Paul's conversion was instantaneous. Stand on your feet. He did. Who art thou, Lord? And so he repented, but it wasn't like he molded over and finally said, okay, I think I will. Good question. Yes. But, uh, I was going to say also that the, the, the word tells us that no one comes to the Father without being drawn by yeah, him. Yeah. God does so, a work of grace. They, yeah. And I know in my case, I was blaspheming Christ the day before I was converted. Yeah, yeah, go ahead and end to Norm. Sure. I was just, I'm sorry. I was going to mention just that 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. That's a passage that directly shows that God is the one who gives repentance. Yeah, um, good point. This is where uh, Paul says, in the Lord's servant, he's talking to, to Timothy, obviously, who's a pastor, elder. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, yeah. leading to the knowledge of the truth. The term grant there, I believe, Bob, isn't that ditto me? Is the, you, uh, give. Yeah, the it's found give. in Acts the same way. Exactly. So didomy literally has to do with God giving repentance. And so that's a gift from God that we're able to repent or believe. And so think of repentance as on one side of a coin. Faith is on the other side. So we repent in order to believe. And so if you've believed, it's because you've repented. 
And so I always think of uh, salvation yeah. by faith and repentance, just two, two sides, sides of the same one coin. coin. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting. You know, when I was in Bible college, and I was at Pentecostal Bible College that was Arminian, but one of my favorite teachers, Dr. Phillips, who was my Greek teacher, he spoke in chapel one time, and he said that same thing. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. And you can just see that from the data in the scripture. And then to Norm. Norm's just making sure we all get the microphone. A <laughs> uh, um, couple different aspects of repenting. There's the original repentance that brings us to faith, the two sides of the coin, and then the daily repentance as well. And as you show here in uh, Acts 3.24 where you talk about, uh, am I looking at the right one, or Acts 3.26 where repentance is a blessing from God. When you think about there can be joy in, in repentance, daily repentance. The fact that uh, God shows you your sin, and, and again, it's what God does as, we, as we're in prayer and we're in communion with him, and then he shows us our sin, and we can repent of it and, and grow closer to him and be you know, forgiven of our sins on a daily basis. Instead of thinking of repentance as such a, it can, it can have such a pejorative aspect to it, repent, you know, and, and be saved. But then that daily repentance is a real blessing and a real joy. It's a right. gift from God. I would agree with that with one caveat. Okay. It doesn't imply that, the, that it goes away. In other words, I'm not forgiven, unforgiven, forgiven, unforgiven, forgiven, unforgiven, repentant, unrepentant. You know, and that, that was a treadmill some of us got on when we were not thinking of the sovereignty of God. It's something we do daily. But it never really goes away either. So we're in, always in one, forgiven. In one, so then, if we can think about that a little bit further, if you keep repenting of the same sin, you've never truly repented of that sin. If you're uh, possibly, would that? Well, our forgiveness is is predicated on the finished work of Christ. Right. When we repent, we're turning from sin to Christ. But if we were capable of identifying every single sin and repenting of them, we can be perfected now before glory. And that's just not possible. So you have to have a global aspect to it. Now, maybe I've read too much Luther, but Luther was concerned for the saints because he'd seen them beaten by Rome for centuries. Of course, he wasn't around for centuries. Beat them, beat them, beat them, beat them, and they sent them back to mass. Luther wanted people to know their sins are forgiven. Okay. Not that we don't repent. Now, because you can look at 2 Corinthians where Paul's concerned that he might get there and they hadn't repented of some evil deeds mm-hmm. that he confronted him about. Mm-hmm. So a Christian can certainly repent of what is a known sin. Is that okay? Yes. I mean, the Holy Spirit brings things to the forefront of our mind that we are, he, he will convict us of our sins and we need to listen to that and not grieve that, correct? It's, yeah, but how do you know that this mystical voice is really the Holy Spirit and not you word. just thinking about your own problems? As long as it's consistent with, with God's word. Yeah, because yeah. the Holy Spirit comes to us through the word. We can't, you know, thoughts of our mind may or may not be the Holy Spirit. So check it against God's word. That's yes, what revealed it, to us. Exactly. Oh, he didn't want it? Okay, over to Brian. <laughs> this is this is kind of a hot topic for me. Okay, the treadmill. You describe Luther's reaction to the Roman Catholic treadmill. Exactly. Okay. 
Been there, done that. <laughs> okay. okay. All right. So identifying sin. This is before my conversion. I was on that treadmill for four years. I was trying to make myself holy. Okay. I was trying to identify sin and, and repent by doing rosaries, go to confession, do all the stuff that Roman, all the tools that Roman Catholicism gave me. I grabbed onto all of them and tried to use them all to stop sinning, to make myself holy, okay? Until I realized it's impossible, okay? <laughs> okay. And I started to have a realization I don't even think I don't even think I can repent of everything in the sense that I think that there's a sin that cannot be repented of. Namely, later on, after my conversion, I found out about inheriting the sin of Adam. Okay, we're born human beings. We're born into one big transgression. You can't repent of it. Okay? <laughs> so if you're if you're putting if you're hanging everything on repentance, I say to you, good luck. You're going to need it. Okay. Because it you can't make yourself holy. You cannot do it. So God does what we cannot do. Okay. He and grants it, and He uses the word. Now, so what is repentance? This is the way that I see it. Okay. What did God grant us? He granted us. Okay, everything that we have in Christ. I'm not going not to elaborate all that. We all know that. That gives us the thing we need to turn to. Okay? That's the thing we put our faith in that gets us out of this mess. Okay? So that's, that's the way I see repentance. You turn from sin. You turn from the whole to, ball game and to you, Christ. To Christ. And you put everything you've got, you stake it all on that. And you get off of this treadmill of trying to figure out, oh, I got to pray 10 Our Fathers, 10 Hail Marys, and 10 Glory Bees because I cussed and swore at the guy in front of me in traffic. Okay? That's a tough one in the traffic business. <laughs> <laughs> I found as you get older, you get a little more peaceful in your heart. Uh, thank you, Brian. Now, that, a Christian can fall into sin and repent of it. But we know we are always standing in forgiveness. Joy, you want me to move some slides around here? Hi, I've got a question about this. If it's green, just make sure you talk right into it. Okay. There you go. Um, I've I've been in several different church services and so forth, and uh, I've heard a lot of talk. In fact, this one that I'm attending part-time now, um, they talk about turning to Christ. Uh Uh-huh. And they give teachings about accepting Christ. Uh-huh. But I've never heard them bring in the word repentance. And I've always thought that that was wrong. But what you're saying right now is that it's two sides of a coin, that you can receive Christ and repent and not not hear the word repentance. And, well, somebody, but you've automatically okay. repented when you receive Christ. Is well, that what you're saying? Well, depending if it's true conversion or not, someone may say, well... 
I never rejected Christ, so he's okay with me. I wouldn't call that conversion. You know, I go to a church and Jesus is just all right. What was it, a song in the 70s? Well, I'm sorry for quoting them. (laughs) But you can be converted not having heard the term repentance. But don't forget, in fact, we've got about a half a minute. Turn to Luke 24. I think it's 44. I'm willing to be corrected, but I think it's 44. And we want to see in Luke Acts what the Great Commission says, what we ought to preach. I believe that we're commanded to preach repentance. Luke 24, I'm saying 44. I might have the wrong verse. I know it's Luke 24. What's it? Good question, by the way. 46. 46, okay. Uh, I'm, now I'm going to have to have somebody read it because my Bible's in my briefcase. And I'm re- I don't have it on my notes here. Rich, could you read? No, is your eyes good enough to read? Um, Bob, I was thinking about that um, um, Mark passage. Jesus began his mystery by saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Exactly. Repent and believe the gospel. That's the, that's that's the verse. That's preach. what I'm thinking about. I'm sorry, that's what I'm thinking about. Mark, uh, Mark, Mark. Mark 1, 14 and 15. Okay, who has Luke 24, 46? 24, there we go, Nancy. And he said to them, thus it is written, thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Exactly. Notice again, the result is the forgiveness of sins. See, I, th- I think what, what's going on in the evangelical church today is this sugarcoating of, of, of what it means to be saved. And, and they, re- re- they take out repentance because it's a dirty word to these people because they're afraid to say it because then it turns people away. Repentance is difficult. And so they say, accept Jesus, receive him, uh, make a commitment. And, and, and they get rid of the whole notion of what it means to repent. Repentance is the essence. Repentance and faith is the essence. And this is what I've learned about the gospel. And this is, it fits like a hand in glove. But, oh, I was so entrapped in accept, accepting Jesus before. And it, it's like a cliche. It loses its meaning. It has no meaning. It's just like, what? What am I saying? I mean, and everybody believes it and says the same thing over and over and over again. And it doesn't mean anything. Right. So, so repentance should be taught. Yes. Yeah, good question. And that, yeah, that, that pa- those passages, Mark 1, 14 and 15, uh, Luke 24, 46, actually command the preaching of repentance with the gospel. Just want to give you an example. I, um, I know a young man who uh, a few months ago, he died from an overdose of drugs. Okay, He supposedly accepted Christ. Well, when I went to his funeral... The preacher there, which is, this is his typical sermon, he talked to all his young friends about the need for accepting Christ. Okay. Not once did he mention the fact that all of these young people were taking drugs. All of these young people. But he told them to come to Christ without one mention of 
any kind of repentance or wow. changing their lives. Now, to me, all those young kids left that funeral and were not impressed one bit about what he said. Yeah, see, that, that doesn't keep, that's not in keeping with what Peter did here. He said, you crucified, he indicted them, and then called them repentance. By the way, Brian, thank you for your sharing. It's a good testimony. Let's close with prayer. We went a little over here. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can talk about these things and look into them and contemplate them. And Lord, we thank you for the gift of repentance. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins. And we thank you for boldness to preach the gospel. And may we understand your gospel as taught in Scripture and preach it clearly and forthrightly without compromise. Give us boldness to preach the gospel. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you all.